A note before we begin. This episode includes discussions of genocide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. There's a word we can think about as we travel through today's episode. It applies to everything I'm about to share, in all its forms. Loss, lost, losing, will lose. Past, present, and future. Loss shatters through these stories, like broken glass on a cold night in Germany in November 1938. It's almost too much to think about, but we're going to. Every week, I say I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. And for that to be genuine, I need to include even the most extreme circumstances. Ugly realities that are uncomfortable to confront, that for most people, myself included, are completely unfathomable. But it's not about being able to understand that's important to me. It's about trying to. It's about sharing different stories with humility and reverence for the people they belong to, to keep the past alive. Because when we forget history, we're doomed to repeat it. This is a special episode to honor the Holocaust Day of Remembrance. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm discussing the Holocaust. Between 1941 and 1945, Nazi Germany and its collaborators enacted a genocide, intending to kill anyone who was Jewish. In many towns, they succeeded. They killed two-thirds of all Jews living in Europe. Six million people. Neighbors, friends, lovers, children, all lost. Amidst the blood, terror, and fear, many went missing in a more traditional sense. Their fate and location unknown, and their children and great-grandchildren are still looking for them. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'll never be able to encapsulate what it meant to disappear during the Holocaust. There are thousands more stories missing from this episode than have made it in. It's too big. 
But I don't want to veer too far into statistics either, because they can feel empty. Numbers just don't show the faces they represent, so I've put together a few stories with common themes. They represent just a fraction of the people who went missing at every stage of the Holocaust. During, after, and in the long history that lingers, those who still haven't been found. Today, we're gonna start before World War II begins with a man named Wolf. It's the mid-1930s. Wolf Friedman lives in Hust, a Czechoslovakian city near the Hungarian border. Like many Eastern European towns at the time, Hust has a thriving Jewish community, one that lives and works alongside other religious and ethnic groups. Eastern Europe is a mixed region. It's not always an easy place to live, but it's home. It's where Wolf marries a rabbi's daughter and raises three little girls. He spends his days reading the Talmud, a scholarly book of rabbinical teachings, law, and tradition. But he's not just an academic, he's also a businessman. He has a wife and daughters to support. That's what's most important to him. That's what feels immediate. Headlines about a man named Adolf Hitler rising to power, stirring up a grassroots movement with anti-Semitic rhetoric, that feels more distant. By November 10th, 1938, the papers are talking about Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, named for the shattered windows that littered streets all over Germany. Nazi paramilitary forces and German civilians devastated Jewish communities across the country, burned synagogues, smashed schools to the ground, looted businesses, and killed almost a hundred Jews. There's no penance, no regret. And to add insult to cruelty, the German government makes the Jews pay damages for the destruction, literally blaming them for their own persecution. But that's in Germany, not Czechoslovakia. Or so Wolf is able to tell himself for a while. The stories keep getting worse. Rumors circulate that German forces are lining up Jews in cemeteries and shooting them at point-blank range, without trial, guilty of no other crime than their religion, or as the Nazis call it, their race. But by 1939, the war brings terror to Wolf's front door. Germany expands its campaign. Hungarian troops ally themselves with the Nazis and start marching towards Hust. Now, the news is immediate. However scared he is, Wolf can't uproot his entire family. They don't have anywhere to go. Hust is their home. Everything changes when the Hungarian troops march into town and claim it as a part of Hungary. The city's Jewish people are subject to the same laws that govern Nazi Germany. The Nuremberg race laws. Jews are no longer considered citizens. They can't marry or have sexual relationships with non-Jews. They become a separate social and political class. Wolf's daughter Gisela remembers this moment, saying, quote, my sister and I were no longer able to attend school. Our family lost its livelihood. My mother was forced to rent out our bedrooms to tourists. We had to find a different place in the house to sleep at night. It's terrifying and dehumanizing but their family remains together. That's something. But by 1944, Nazi troops invade Hust. They tear Wolf and his family from their home and ship them off to Auschwitz by cattle car. 
There are stories of these cars, bodies stuffed into metal shipping containers like livestock. Starving, thirsty, the living gasp for air through the cracks in the floor, while the dead and dying press up against them. Wolf and his family make it to Auschwitz alive. They're not handed over to a death camp where all Jews are killed upon arrival. They're here to labor. Soldiers tear Wolf away from his wife and children. His youngest daughter, Gisela, tries to run to him and say goodbye, but a fellow prisoner who'd been put to work by the German soldier stops her. She'll remember the moment later, saying, quote, that would have been my chance to maybe kiss him for the last time. Because after that, Gisela's father disappears. For months, Gisela, her mother, and her sisters don't know what happened to Wolf, whether he's dead or alive. All they know is he's missing, and there's no recourse for finding him. All they can do is try to stay alive in a place they couldn't care less if they died. Now, there are many resources out there that detail the horrors of life at concentration camps, both in Auschwitz and elsewhere. Because I'm telling you these stories through the lens of what it means to disappear, I'm not going to detail everything here. But I do think it's important to confront the evil that we as humans are capable of enacting, as well as the indifference that allows it to happen. So I'm going to include some resources at the end of this episode. Gisela survives five months of unthinkable horrors before her family is fractured even further. She and her sister Helen are transferred to a different labor camp, while her mother remains at Auschwitz. It's unclear where her elder sister is during this time. Gisela and Helen wake up every morning to assemble parts for planes, wondering if the rest of their family is alive, whether they've been gassed, shot, or moved somewhere new, whether they'll ever see each other again. Gisela and Helen survive until the end of the war. They make it out alive and free. It's almost unfathomable considering the number of men, women, and children they've watched die. Not knowing where else to go, the two sisters return home to Hoost. There, something wonderful happens. They're reunited with their mother and sister. Amidst the chaos and tragedy of mass displacement and murder, they somehow manage to survive and find each other again. But Wolf is still missing. All they hear is this. In October 1944, a skeletal man delivered a message to the women's camp in Auschwitz, saying, tell them just now, 200 men were brought back from the coal mine. Tell them that tomorrow we won't be here anymore. That man, they're told, was Wolf Friedman. Gisela learns the Nazis gassed her father one day after he tried to get this message across a wire fence. The day, perhaps, he hoped to say goodbye to his family. It's not the answer anyone wanted. Wolf is no longer missing. He's lost forever. I'm not sure when or how Gisela and her family get this information, but it's possible it comes through the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, or UNRWA. It's a small but dedicated special division of the United Nations, tasked with helping people displaced by the war. Their work is wide-ranging, but it involves investigating missing persons cases. They use detailed records kept by the Nazis themselves, who they kidnapped from where, where they performed forced labor, when they were killed. 
The Nazis destroyed some of these records before the Allies seized them, but many were recovered. Long lists of heinous crimes, recorded like the weather. Using these, the UNRWA track down survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators. And they do this incredibly important work from the war's end until they're disbanded around 1947. The International Refugee Organization, another specialized UN agency, takes up the mantle from there. During the Holocaust, almost all Jewish families had missing persons. It was a common story, a common experience. It feels strange to use common to describe something so terrible, but it's accurate. So many people didn't know if their missing loved ones were dead or alive. Dead may have been the obvious assumption, but as I've said before, an assumption is not an answer. For so many people, after the war, the missing stayed missing. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. We ended Wolf's story after the war in Hoost, Czechoslovakia. This next story starts during the war in a small village in Transylvania, Romania. It's the fall of 1943. Teenage brothers Ervin and Sultan Farkas are separated from their father. He's a leader in their town, deported because of his prominence. The Nazis and their allies know it's easiest to subjugate groups without leadership. The Farkas brothers suspect their father has died or been killed, but they don't know for sure. For now, he's missing. Their story echoes that of Wolf Friedman's family. In the spring of 1944, the brothers are ripped from their home, along with their mother and sisters, and taken to Auschwitz. There, they're separated from the women. Erwin and Zoltan suspect their family has been sent straight to the gas chambers, but again, they don't know. The brothers are moved around between camps until the final days of the war in 1945, when allies are headed into Nazi-occupied territory. The Nazis will do anything to keep their enemies from freeing concentration camps, so they force prisoners to keep moving, trudging through the night without food or water on a death march to Dachau. They shoot anyone who's too weak to keep walking, which ends up being one in four people. Ervin and Zoltan muster the strength to keep marching, 
on and on until they're too hungry to feel hunger anymore, but their thirst is harder to forget. Then, on April 23, 1945, they hear the sound of American tanks rolling into Germany behind them. It's the sound of hope. The Allies are overrunning Germany. Before long, Erwin and Zoltan are set free, but they're then faced with a question. What next? The brothers have no idea where their family is, but they're faced with a choice wade back into the darkness and search for answers, or turn to the future. Ultimately, they decide on the latter. Erving later says, quote, what we wanted was to get out of Germany. This is an important moment in a lot of Holocaust stories. Often, survivors have been through too much trauma to seek out their missing loved ones. They barely have the resources to feed themselves, much less contact UNRWA agents for information about their relatives. Information that might not exist or may only confirm their worst nightmares. In the messy aftermath of war, they choose themselves and hope that if their relatives survived, they're also moving forward. This doesn't mean they don't want to know the truth They've just lost so much, they need to find their way back to life, starting with simple tasks like locating a warm meal. For Erwin and Zoltan, still just teenagers, that warm meal comes from the International Displaced Person Children's Center at Kloster Indersdorf, run by the UNRWA. Kloster Indersdorf is a haven. It's safe and warm. Greta Fischer, the UNRWA worker who led the center, explains, quote, the first thing was to give them food, plenty of food, to give them clothing and listen to their stories. We listened to their stories days and nights. It had to come out. And sometimes it took us hours to sit with them. You could not interrupt. But it's also a temporary haven. Fisher and her team can't house survivors forever. Ideally, they want to find the families of the children. To that end, in 1945, the UNRWA commissions photographs of the children in their care holding a nameplate. They hope these photos will help match children and family members throughout the world. In her book, The Rage to Live, Fulbright fellow Anna Andelauer explained, quote, the children projected the hopes onto these photos that if they were still alive, their relatives would be alerted to their whereabouts by the picture and would rush to Indersdorf and pick them up there. In a few cases, this actually happened, but within most of the Jewish children, dark suspicion grew gradually into horrible certainty that from now on, each was all alone in the world. Erwin and Zoltan's parents don't rush to pick them up, but they learn they aren't entirely alone either. They have family in the States. Kloster Indersdorf helps them get in touch with their American relatives who offer to take them in. It's great news, but getting a visa is not easy. There are quotas. The international community expresses outrage and sorrow on behalf of the Jews. They understand some of what happened, what's been lost, but their thoughts and prayers don't open borders. So Zoltan decides to return to Romania he wants to see if he can recover traces of their past, but the brothers don't find anything or anyone. Erwin and Zoltan bide their time until December 1946, 
when they're finally able to get visas and immigrate to the United States. Their fresh start takes the brothers far. Both serve in the American army, go to college, and build successful careers. Neither has children, but they stay in touch throughout their long lives. Meanwhile, back in Europe, their missing loved ones stay missing. This story, like Wolf's, is common. Many survivors come to the same conclusion. Their loved ones are lost, gone forever. Even without the hard proof of Nazi ledgers, they know their relatives will never be found. Not alive. They, like so many others, were most likely the victims of human depravity and hatred. But occasionally, survivors are proven wrong and granted beautiful surprises. This is the case for Crystal Eric, born Crystal Pelikis. In 1944, she flees Mamel in current-day Lithuania. After she hears that her brother Gunter died in a wartime bombing raid, she tries to move on. She settles in what is now northeastern Germany, marries and raises a family. Then, in 2013, she gets a message from the German Red Cross tracing service. A man named Gunter Pelikis just registered with them. Her brother didn't die in the raid. He went missing. And he's alive. Gunter spent the war in a children's home, then moved around to different clinics and foster families. He described this period of his life by saying, quote, I was a person without roots. But 72 years later, he finds his family again. He finds roots again. In the aftermath of the war, victims and survivors are left with burnt and broken family trees. Claudia de Levy's parents fled Germany in the 1930s. She grew up in Argentina, knowing she lost family in the Holocaust. Based on the stories, she's estimated about four or five relatives. But while helping her daughter with homework through the Yad Vashem, a remembrance center based in Israel, she found a database that collects testimony and information about victims of the Holocaust. She researches her bloodline and learns that 180 members of her extended family were killed. Rosetta Van Engeland Groen survived the Holocaust herself, but was just a baby when she was in concentration camps. She has no formative memories of the experience. In a 2022 New York Times interview, she explained, quote, I couldn't ask my grandfather because when I asked him something, he cried. So I didn't ask a lot and nobody else could tell me. Like Rosetta, many descendants are left unsure what pieces of their past have been lost to the fires and chaos of genocide and what's been lost to silence. Memories that are too painful to speak out loud. The Holocaust ended almost 78 years ago. Every year, more survivors pass away. Every year, it gets harder for post-war generations to find out what happened to relatives who are still labeled missing. But sometimes, through intense dedication, persistence, and time, even a past that seems completely lost can be recovered. For today's final story, we're beginning after World War II, outside of Europe, in the United States, in the year 1960. That's when Daniel Mendelssohn is born, on Long Island, New York. 
His grandfather's generation lived through the Holocaust, but even during the war in the 1930s and 40s, lots of Daniel's family was already in America, including his grandfather, but not his grandfather's brother, Schmiel Jaeger. When the Nazis began their rise, Schmiel Jaeger was still in the old country, in Bolohov, Poland. He lived through the war, and at some point during the violent purges of Jews in Bolohov, he went missing. Daniel grows up hearing stories about Schmiel, in part because everyone says Daniel looks just like him. Some relatives burst into tears when they see him. The resemblance is that uncanny. They tell Daniel about Schmiel's knack for business, about his four beautiful daughters, but no one can quite remember their names, the girls. And while everyone agrees Schmiel died during the war, no one can tell Daniel how or when. They just say he and his family were hiding, and then they were betrayed by the maid, by the neighbor, by someone. All Daniel has are fragments of Schmiel's life story and others' tears to remember him by. This makes Daniel curious. Like so many of us, he wants to understand his family history. By the late 1990s, he's fully grown and an academic researcher by profession. In other words, he knows a thing or two about how and where to search for information. He requests documents on the family from the German Red Cross Tracing Service and eventually receives a reply. There is no known information about any members of Schmiel's family but Daniel knows better than to give up. He looks into his grandfather's old letters with Schmiel to see what he can glean. These start to paint a fuller picture of his grandfather's missing brother. Schmiel was clearly a proud man, proud of his work, of his social status, of his beautiful daughters. He was also desperate to get out of Poland as the war advanced and the cattle cars rumbled across Europe. Daniel's curiosity deepens, but there's so little information to go on, so much lost. Plus, he doesn't have the letters his grandfather sent back, and he can't ask his grandfather what was said anymore. He's passed away. So like any good investigator, Daniel decides to talk to anyone he can who might know something. Over the next few years, he travels around the world interviewing Jews who'd grown up in Bolohov, Poland. Only 48 survived the war, 48 out of thousands. And only a handful survived to see the new millennium, but he identifies a few. In Australia, in Israel, in Scandinavia, even in New York City, close to home. They all have stories more than how they disappeared, Daniel wants to know who his family was before hatred leveled their lives, who they might've been had their lives not been stolen. Through interviews, Daniel learns a lot about Schmiel, who was apparently a well-known man around town, a successful kosher butcher. Some survivors tell Daniel they dated Schmiel's daughters, daughters who were finally given names, Lorca, Fridka, Ruhella, and Brunia. They tell him about Lorca's responsible reserve, about Fridka's vivacious energy and popularity, how Ruhella was well-behaved and sweet-tempered, learning to be a dressmaker. But there are discrepancies. 
Different people remember the girls differently, so it's hard for Daniel to get a clear picture of anyone. He learns the least about Bronya. She was the youngest, just a girl no older than 13 when the Nazis came and tore their lives apart. Figuring out what happened to each of them is even more complicated. The only concrete detail Daniel is able to discern is, Ruhella is not missing. She was murdered on October 28th or 29th, 1941, in the so-called first Axion, the first mass killing of Jews in Bolohov. That night, a thousand Jews were rounded up in a building, tortured for 24 hours, and then marched to a mass gravesite where they were shot off a plank, one by one. One of Daniel's interviewees, Jack Green, vividly remembers Ruhella's death because his mother and older brother were murdered at the same time. But Daniel's told Shmiel, his wife Esther, and the three other girls survived. After that night, the Jews of Bolohov scattered. The ones who survived the war went into hiding and therefore couldn't be sure what happened to anyone in their community, not with any certainty. But they've heard the stories. These stories are different from the vague narratives Daniel heard growing up. They come together like clippings from a magazine, forming a collage of the Jaeger family's final days. Incomplete and sometimes contradictory, but full of tangible detail. Mostly, they agree Lorca escaped into the woods to join the local resistance group, the Partisans. Some remember the Partisans were helped by a local boy or a group of boys, non-Jews, one of whom may have been Friedka's boyfriend, Chisko Shemansky. Lorca was likely killed during the partisan resistance efforts. Some survivors tell Daniel that Fredka might have been there too. Others recount how Esther, young Bronya, and Shamil died during the second Axion in September 1942. While Esther and Bronya were likely captured and killed at this time, Shmiel and his daughter Fredka actually remained hidden in the house of a Polish art teacher. They were later discovered and killed. Daniel explores these stories with depth, thoughtfulness, and an insatiable hunger for the truth. His work is awe-inspiring, and I won't try to detail his many years of research here. Instead, I'll just tell you to read his book, The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million. It's heartbreakingly beautiful. I'd also recommend Ken Burns' 2022 documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, which explores Daniel's family and research as well through an even wider lens. Without giving away too much of Daniel's book, I wanna focus on what happens at the end of Daniel's search through these shifting, unstable memories. Daniel goes to Bolohov. He asks older people he meets in the streets, do they know of the Jaeger family? At first, he's met with shrugs. He's pointed in different directions, shuttled from person to person, but no one can help him narrow or reconcile, much less prove the stories he's been chasing for years. Then, just as he's about to move on and accept that he's learned all he can, he meets this elderly Polish woman. She's lived in Bolohov her whole life. And she tells him, she knows of an art teacher who lived on her street and hid Jews during the war. This is the story she tells Daniel. In 1943, she's about 15 years old. After a day of running errands, she comes home to some commotion on the street. 
someone, she can't remember who, but presumably a neighbor, had noticed something. A young man, Chisko Shumansky, was bringing food to Hela Sedelkova's house. Hela was a teacher who lived down the street, but had no relation to Chisko. This made the neighbor suspicious, so they called the Germans. There, in Hela's basement, the Nazi soldiers find Fridka and Schmiel. They bring Fridka and Schmiel outside to Hela's garden, where they're shot and killed on the spot. According to a woman Daniel interviews, Chisko and Hela are later taken to a neighboring town and hang together for protecting the father and daughter. The Polish woman is even able to take Daniel to the house where they died. It's just down the street. The current occupants let him in. He finds a trap door, which leads him to a little hole in the ground about eight feet deep and three by three feet wide. The hole where his relatives survived for weeks, months, maybe even more. Thanks to the bravery of a school teacher and a Polish boy who loved Fridka. Daniel stands there, shivering in the damp cold. Then he clambers out of the hole. He's still without every answer. There are still gaps, but he knows enough to feel like his family is no longer missing. They have a story. Finding the truth isn't always about legal justice. Sometimes it's just about the honor of remembering, the dignity of fighting for the fact that someone existed, that they had a past, that they were loved. In 2018, it was announced that German funding for the Red Cross World War II tracing service would end this year, 2023. But due to increased interest from families, the Red Cross has extended funding until 2025. Should the project actually shut down, Daniel Mendelssohn has shown it's not the only way to find answers, but his method of talking to those who lived through the Holocaust will become impossible soon too. If you have family members who went missing during the Holocaust and you want to look into their stories, I highly recommend you get in touch with the German Red Cross as soon as possible. There's information on how to submit a tracing request on their website. I'll include the link in this episode's description. There are also resources that won't be going anywhere, like the archives at Yad Vashem, where Claudia DeLevy found information about the relatives she lost. You can also look into the Arelson archives, which offer an international tracing service. In the US, you can submit archive requests to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. But I want to acknowledge that it's not always possible to find information. Thomas Huber, who headed the German Red Cross Missing Persons Program in 2018, said that of the 1.2 million people still missing, most will stay missing. He said, quote, we won't be able to shed light on their fates. For many relatives, it continues to be a black hole on their family tree. You guys know me, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. But Daniel Mendelssohn spoke to the importance of eventually turning away from the past and toward the future, as so many Holocaust survivors have done against unimaginable odds. He references a story from the Torah about Lot's wife, who defies God to turn back towards her wicked city, and as a result, becomes a pillar of salt. Daniel suggests perhaps this isn't a mere punishment. He says, quote, Lot and his family are commanded not to look back for a practical reason, because regret for what we have lost, for the past we have to abandon, 
often poisons any attempts to make a new life. No matter what you believe spiritually, Daniel isn't one to suggest we forget the past. And we must never, never deny the past. But once you've dug in and found what answers you can, it's time to turn to the future, to take the lessons you've learned and make something better. A kinder world where we fight for our neighbors, where like Hella the teacher and Chisco the lover, we protect anyone who's disenfranchised or vulnerable. We need to acknowledge the past, respect the stories of the missing and the dead. And then we must live. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on the Holocaust, we recommend checking out ushmm.org and yadvashem.org. I'll put those links in the episode description along with the others I mentioned. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Nora Battelle, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.